This episode of Armchair Explorer is brought to you by the 2024 Nissan Pathfinder. With seven drive modes, the Pathfinder's available intelligent 4x4 is built for even the most epic journeys. And epic journeys is what we're all about. Learn more at NissanUSA.com. Hey guys, welcome to the Armchair Explorer, where the world's greatest adventurers tell their best story from the road. I'm Aaron Miller, I'm a travel writer, and this episode, we have one of the world's best-known mountaineers telling the story, not of his most famous climb or his hardest or most dangerous climb, but the story of what was perhaps the most profound adventure of his life, a journey in search of a lost friend. It's a tearjerker. Are you ready? Let's go. Taking us on this adventure is Rick Ridgway, one of the leading mountaineers of his generation, of any generation for that matter. He's also a filmmaker, an environmentalist, and an all-round lovely bloke, as well as the best-selling author of numerous tales of his real-life adventures, including his latest book, which is called Life lived wild adventures at the edge of the map it's a beautiful memoir of his life he's a wonderful writer and the stories that he shares are going to make you want to head straight to the edge of the map and jump headfirst into that wild life too i've linked to it in the show notes on the website or just search it up on amazon patagonia.com which is the publisher or wherever you get your books So we're just about to get started, but before we do, if you're enjoying the show, please consider a small monthly donation to help make it possible. For just five bucks a month, about £3.50, less than the cost of a single pint, you can get ad-free shows and access to our Explorers community with a whole heap of benefits, including exclusive travel discounts delivered direct to your inbox. Just click the link on the show notes, website, or head over to patreon.com forward slash armchair explorer podcast that's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com forward slash armchair explorer podcast to find out more please also hit me up on social media at armchair explorer podcast across instagram and facebook and subscribe to the newsletter at armchair dash explorer.com if you like travel and adventure you've come to the right place come and hang out we're gonna get on well But don't worry about that right now, because the adventure is about to begin, and we're going to head to one of the most remote corners of the Himalayas on a journey in search of a lost father and friend. But before we do, let's hear about an equally important adventure in many ways, because it was the first adventure of Rick's life, and despite already being bitten by the climbing bug, it wasn't in the mountains, it was in the ocean. He was living in Hawaii at the time as a harbour rat, as he calls himself back then, half studying at college, half messing around in the sea. He'd only been sailing for four months, but somehow he talked himself onto the crew of a sailboat bound for Tahiti and a voyage across the Pacific Ocean. We were all young kids and we took off from Honolulu and not that many of us had that much sailing experience. And the owner of the boat was confident he knew the most essential skill, which was navigation. 24 days later, we saw an island in front of us. We'd been out to sea for over three weeks and we related except it wasn't Tahiti. And we didn't know what it was because the guy who was supposed to know how to navigate had just kept making mistakes. And, and I went through all my calculations and I, 
I couldn't figure out what was wrong. But one of the kids on the radio was kind of a, today we'd call him a geek. And we had this uh, big radio called a Zenith Transoceanic. Every day we would tune it into this broadcast uh, of a time tick. And that was how we got the time in order to navigate. But the radio also just had a, you know, standard broadcast radio wavelength. So we, we just started tuning in and pretty soon we picked up this radio station and we realized it was Radio Tahiti. We could hear this guy speaking in Tahitian French and they were playing drums on the radio. So this kid took a coat hanger out of the hanging locker on the boat and he made a loop directional antenna and he wired it into the radio and he turned it into a radio direction finder. Then he moved the radio around until the Radio Tahiti signal got the strongest. And then he pointed in a direction perpendicular to the radio and he said, Tahiti is that way. We all just kind of lit up. And then he turned around 180 degrees and he pointed the exact opposite direction and he said, or it's that way. So we had to guess which way it was. And by then we were almost out of food and we had very little water left. We were down to trying to capture rain squalls in our sail, the trough of our sail. And it was the first time in my life where, you know, I was 18 years old and whether we were going to make it and survive this thing was kind of in my hands. Like I had to figure out how to help navigate this boat. I had to do my part to try to get us out of this pickle because, you know, you're 18 years old and the ocean's really big and you've never done any long distance sailing. It's scary. And then I remember two days later, I was asleep. It was about four or five in the morning. It hadn't quite got light yet. And I was down in the berth because I was off watch and up topside, the guy on the helm said, land ho, and we just all ran up. And through the dawn light, we could see the spires of Morea, which is the island near Tahiti. There was this music playing all night long, drums beating. We could hear people giggling and laughing, and it was just intoxicating. And there were people everywhere partying. I mean, there was this giant party going on. It had been going on all night. There was this truck drove by with people on top dancing and they were doing that the women were doing that tamara dance where their hips vibrated and god we were just our tongues were hanging out and and one of it, one of my buddies looked at me and said it's tahiti and, and another guy said it must be like this every day well we had no idea that july 14th is bastille day it was the biggest celebration of the year in tahiti but uh anyway we had a great time. I was there all summer. I was late getting back to college, but I was smitten with adventure, with the idea of going on these adventures. That was my first real one at age 18, but it, it really set the path for my life. So it's been a mix of mountains and ocean, uh, jungle, ice caps, just wild nature. That's where I spent a good part of my life. He has done some incredible things. He was on the first American ascent of K2, the hardest mountain in the world to climb, the first person to cross Borneo coast to coast and trek across a region of Tibet so remote that they'd never seen outsiders before. He's been everywhere from the Amazon to Antarctica, and he has spent, by his own estimation, something in the region of five years sleeping in tents, most of them dangling off the edge of some mountain somewhere. His lust for adventure was sparked on that trip to Tahiti, but his fire never went out. And through it all, the two people he climbed with the most, his lifelong companions, were Yvonne Schoenard and Doug Tompkins, two names you might know well. 
Yvonne is the founder of the outdoor clothing and retail giant Patagonia, as well as one of the most accomplished climbers in the world himself. And Doug Tompkins was the founder of North Face and went on before his death to become one of the world's most visionary and radical conservationists. The first climb we ever went on together was on Mount Rainier, actually, a less ascended part of the mountain called the Coutts Glacier. And the real purpose of that trip was to take another friend of mine who I had met a couple years before, the newscaster Tom Brokaw, on his first snow and ice climb. And uh, it was also my, you know, my first meeting with Doug. You know, when I first started climbing, they were my heroes and my gods. And then here I was actually climbing with them and as well as the most famous newscaster in the country. And then we give Brokaw his first uh, snow and ice lessons. You know, Yvonne straps crampons on and makes him walk around the tent. And you know, he walks around the tent and Yvonne says, okay, you know how to use those. And then he teaches him, you know, how to self-arrest with his ice axe. And he does a practice one and Tom, you know, stops the fall and Yvonne goes, okay, that box is checked. And I can see Brokaw getting increasingly nervous, but we made it to the top. And, you know, here, some of the best climbers in the world, as we approach the top, we walk right into this fog bank and pretty soon there's a whiteout. The clouds just descend right over the top of the mountain. And we needed to get to the summit, not to stand on the highest point, but to be able to connect to the standard route that went down the opposite side of the mountain, because that was going to be the easier and quicker way to get Tom safely down the mountain. But in this whiteout, we had no idea which way it was. And we had the map out, we did have a topo map, and we're trying to guess which way we're supposed to go. And Brokaw's just standing there looking at us, and, and pretty soon he says, would a compass help? And Yvonne looks at him and says, you got a compass? <laughs> and so Tom pulls out his Boy Scout compass, and we use that to safely get our charge, Tom, off the mountain. And, you know, that story ends with a little kind of a coda where I move forward about 30 or 40 years. It's a long time into the future. And Tom's got cancer and he's in his 70s and he's fighting for his life. And by then, we're all family. We've been on so many trips together. And my wife goes out, who's part of the family, to, to see Tom. She's in New York and goes out to dinner with Tom and his wife, Meredith. And I had sent Tom a, a photo book of all of our adventures together. And he's telling my wife, you know, what it meant to him. And, he's, and he broke down and started crying right, right at dinner. Because our time together in the mountains with this guy who has been with all the world leaders and, you know, seen firsthand so much of the history of the 20th century. His time with us in the mountains had meant so much to him. And my wife got back and, and said, you know, that book you sent Tom, it, it meant so much. He, he really wanted me to give you a hug. And then he said, he also wanted me to give you this, I don't know what it is, this thing he handed me in this little box. And she gives me this little box and, and I open it up and inside was the, the Boy Scout compass. And there are many other wonderful stories. Too many to tell here. You'll have to buy the book and discover them for yourself. But the story that was perhaps the most important of his life, the most meaningful and that affected him the most, was it his greatest achievement. In fact, it began with his greatest tragedy. I was invited in the mid-1970s to join what then was only the second American expedition to attempt Mount Everest. Uh, and we made what was really the second American Ascent of Mount Everest, and it was filmed for television, a CBS special. <laughs> and one of the camera crew was a young man named Jonathan Wright, and 
he and I were about the same age in our mid-20s, and we really hit it off. It was his second time to the Himalayas. He had been there once before, spending many months there, cumulatively over a year's time, trekking and, and exploring, not climbing as much, but also uh, spending a, a lot of time in Buddhist retreats. And he'd studied under some prominent gurus. And he had, at a very early age, integrated that into his life. And he became a, a teacher for me, even though we were the, the same age. He wanted to learn more about mountaineering for me, and I wanted to learn more about uh, the viewpoints of living that he had got through Buddhism. He was a photographer, and I wanted to be a writer. And we'd become a, a writer-photographer team. We were really excited when, in 1980, we were invited on an expedition to attempt a very remote mountain in eastern Tibet called Minyakonka that had only been climbed twice before, a 25,000-foot peak. And uh, it was an area that had not been visited by anybody from the outside for just over 50 years. So the adventure of going there and seeing this remote place was just as exciting as the climb itself. Well, one day, carrying packs and equipment up to establish a camp at about the 20,000 foot level. Four of us were coming down, including by then my close friend Yvonne Chouinard, when we, we triggered an avalanche. You know, we hadn't managed the risk correctly. And four of us were swept down the side of the mountain in a slab avalanche. And then I knew there was no way out of this thing. So I was just hopeful it would slow and stop, but it was gaining speed. And soon we were approaching a a cliff. I knew what I knew the cliff because we'd had to climb up it. And at that point, I, I didn't think there was any way I could get out alive. So the four of us, in just thundering snow all around us, hurled into space over this cliff. And then we funneled down this gully at really rapid speed. I was in the snow, on top of the snow, struggling to take a breath when I emerged just getting glimpses of my three companions here and there, and still assuming that this was it. I was just about to get killed when the avalanche slowed and stopped. And all four of us were still alive, remarkably, but we were all injured to varying degrees. After a few minutes, realized I was probably the least injured. Uh, so I had to attend to the others. Yvonne had a concussion, he was delirious. The fourth guy had a what turned out to be a broken back and legs and knees torn out. And Jonathan was injured badly and soon lost consciousness. And I realized that he was probably, of all four of us, the most injured. And, and then he stopped breathing. So I started giving him mouth to mouth as I held him on my lap, uh, watching him start to breathe again on his own, but then stop and, and having to continue. I watched as he would breathe again for a few breaths only, and then exhale, and I would have to give him mouth to mouth again. And he had started breathing again, and he stopped, and I was watching his face when his whole demeanor changed. And it it was a paling, but it was a change of complexion. And even more than that, it was an, an ineffable shift in his whole being that made me know in an instant that he had died. And I just stopped the mouth to mouth and just held him and stroked his hair. And then I did check his pulse and it was gone. I wanted to make sure my intuition was right and I 
lowered my ear to his mouth and listened carefully, and there was no breath. And that confirmed what I already knew without needing confirmation. Because I had seen this change in his spirit, this seeming departure of his life force out of him. And I'd never seen that before. I had seen people die, but I guess I hadn't held them in my arms and close enough to, to see that. His head rested on my knee, he writes. I moved my fingers through his hair and watched his face. His lips had lost color. All of a sudden, his face paled as though some part of his being suddenly evaporated. In less than a second, he was different. I held him in my lap as I continued to stroke his hair. I gently kissed him on his forehead. They buried him at first light, and as they placed the stones around and over his body, the ground was frozen and hard to dig. His thoughts turned to Jonathan's wife and his young daughter, who was just taking her first steps, barely more than a baby at the time. Then, um, a couple of decades later, not even quite 20 years after Jonathan had died in my arms, a young woman came out to spend the summer with us. And I had stayed in touch with her through her whole life because she was only a year old when her father, Jonathan, had died in my arms. Uh, and I had tried to fill in as a father uh, as I could, but I hadn't done that very much. And Asia, Jonathan had named her after his favorite place in the world, was then 20 years old. And I had a small business licensing reproduction rights to photography and film to advertising agencies. And she wanted to be a photographer like her father. So she came out to spend a summer working in my company and staying with us. And I knew that at some point she was probably going to want to know from me more about how her father had died. And I, I was ready for that because I thought it through. And I decided in advance that I wouldn't really hold back. So the week before she was to go back home to her mother, who had never remarried, and who had really shut her father out of their lives, so she didn't know that much about him, I sat down on the porch with her and, and told her more about him and about our times and adventures together. And I told her about how he had died. And, and I, didn't, I didn't hold back on it. And she thanked me. And then, you know, she said, well, um, I've got a, you know, I've had a dream to go to Asia. And I need to ask you a favor. And I thought for sure she was going to just want me to help her pay for the trip. And then she asked me something I totally hadn't anticipated at all. She said, well, I want to go to Asia, but I want you to come with me because I want to go back to Minyakonka and I want to climb the mountain up on the side and I want to find my father. I want to find his grave. And I was shocked. But he knew he had to go. He had promised to himself as Jonathan died that he would be there for Asia, that he would care for her as much as he could. He wanted to honor his friend, so he agreed to help her. And in that instant, an adventure began, unlike any in his life before or after, an adventure to the high mountains in search of his friend and in search of Asia's lost father. This episode of Armchair Explorer is presented by the 2024 Nissan Pathfinder. From muddy jungle paths and snowy trails to rolling sand dunes, the 2024 Nissan Pathfinder has the capability to take you to some of the most epic destinations on Earth. 
And Pathfinder, that's a pretty cool name, isn't it? Because that's also what this show is all about. Exploring, getting off trail, having adventures, finding your own path and living life to the fullest. Sound like you? Yep, sounds like me too. Which is why I'm so excited to partner with Nissan. The 2024 Nissan Pathfinder has seven drive modes, available intelligent 4x4. It's got the best towing capacity in its class, up to 6,000 pounds. So go ahead and bring all that gear with you and lots more. The 2024 Nissan Pathfinder, a vehicle built for adventures everywhere. So thanks again to Nissan for sponsoring this episode and for the reminder to chase bigger, better, more exciting adventures and enjoy the ride along the way. Learn more at NissanUSA.com. I decided that I would take her on a grand adventure like her father would have taken her on, where he on his adventures would have had her along as I sometimes took my kids on outings. And I know that he would have tried to teach her some of the lessons I had taken from the mountains. So we went on a long two-month adventure across Asia, trekking in the Mount Everest region, uh, where we had Sherpas trekking with us who had been friends of her father's. We did the circumnabulation in Tibet of Mount Kailas, which is something that her father had dreamed of doing himself, the most sacred trek uh, a Buddhist could do. And then we went out to Western Tibet and uh, in a very remote region and we climbed a 21,000 foot mountain that had never been ascended, that was so remote it didn't even have a name. And again, I knew he would have done things like that for her as well. Before he died, Jonathan wrote in his journal, which Rick had brought with him, Someday I will bring this child to these mountains to discover the truths of life, the truths that I am still learning. For Jonathan, those truths weren't just found in the mountains, but in the culture and beliefs that surrounded them, in Buddhism and the ideas of impermanence and transcendence. And that, too, was what Rick hoped to show her. It was an incredible journey, and it made this trip not just about her father's death, but also about his life, who he was, and why he risked and ultimately gave his life to this place he loved so dearly. They hiked the trail to Everest Base Camp, as her father had done, and watched the clouds clear over that great mountain. They completed the Kailash Circuit, the most sacred of all Buddhist pilgrimages that her father had always wanted to do himself. On the summit of that unnamed, unclimbed peak, she got a taste for the danger, that siren call of the wild that had enchanted her father. In the vastness of the Himalayan steppe, they watched two Tibetan brown bears pass close by, dangerous animals, and felt, as he quotes in the book from the environmentalist Dave Foreman, the reality check of walking in a neighborhood where the locals have big teeth. This and more her father would have shown her. This and more for two months they experienced together. And through that, Asia began to slowly understand who her father was. She felt closer to him than she ever had before. She felt stronger in herself than she ever had before. Rick had lived up to that promise he made silently stroking his dying friend's hair. But then it was time, because the adventure was over and the final journey was about to begin. We crossed Tibet to the other side of the plateau to Minyakonka, and by the time we got there, the monsoon had started, and the rains had come in, and it was snowing up higher, and the weather was deteriorating, and and the mountain had seemed to change so much. Uh, I wasn't even sure I could find his grave. I was getting increasingly worried. 
that even if the weather allowed us, would I be able to locate it? I, I realized part of the problem was that because of global warming, the glaciers had retreated so much that I couldn't even recognize the places again. But finally, I did recognize a promontory where I knew that that was the one where he had died and we had buried him. It was hard to reach. More than once, he thought it would be impossible, that the journey would be in vain. The final trek to the base camp beneath Minyakonko, where they had buried Jonathan, was two days over rough ground. They were alone. And just before they set off, it began to rain hard, sheets of water pummeling the stones and flooding the river they would soon have to ford. But they made it, jumping boulders and fallen logs over the icy flow to a moraine above the river where they set up camp, the sky darkening in clouds as night set and lightning storms ravaged the peaks above. There in the tent, they lay still in silence together, both not voicing the single shared thought racing through their brain. In this weather, we'll never make it. But if we don't make it now, we'll never have another chance again. But when dawn broke, the storm broke too. And the next morning, they climbed the moraine and onto a steep cliff, harder and more dangerous than Rick had remembered. But Asia was determined and pushed away her fear and inexperience and step by step ascended the mountain until they reached her father's grave. As Asia and I approached the grave and, and when I first saw it, we were quite close to it. We were only 50 or 60 feet from it. And she sat down. She didn't know if she could continue to the grave. Uh, and I said, stay right here. I'm going to go. I'm going to go check it out. Every step was a mix of past and present. The sound of the my boot on the flagstones, just that sound uh, took me back to the day I was carrying Jonathan on, on my shoulders, his frozen body to his grave, and the sound of my boots on those stones. And the feeling of burying him, the, the emotion of it, was there as clear as it was 20 years before. And it was a mix of past and present that was so vivid that they melded together. And it was though there was no two-decade separation between the two events of his initial bury and his reburial. They had melded together. So she and I climbed up a steep section uh, to that promontory and we found his grave, but it was, it was in pieces. We had buried him carefully under a beautifully built bier of flagstones, but they had been kind of taken apart probably by a snow leopard and, and his bones were scattered. So that young woman and I, Asia, we collected those bones and we reassembled her father literally and reburied him and put new prayer flags over his grave. I smell the earth as I pry loose the stones, he writes, and carry them to the byre and set them gently on top of my old friend. Now I am with his daughter and we do this together, she and I, and it is good work. When they are done, he kneels beside the grave and places his hand on the stones, and as he does so, he remembers a passage he had read in Jonathan's journal, a passage from the Bhagavad Gita, the ancient Sanskrit poem, and recites it out loud. In this world, we are all creatures of time, he says. We and the objects of our love are only like pieces of wood that drift together for a time on the ocean flood and then part forever. This is what Jonathan, in life and in death, 
taught him. I try to integrate that knowledge that none of us know uh, that unmarked day on our calendar when we're going to die, and that those who have been close to death begin to understand that that day can come with no warning and it can come by surprise. And that thinking that through profoundly would lead everyone to the conclusion that the secret of life is to live fully in life, as fully as you can every day of your life. <laughs> and it's a banal commonplace, I think, for most people, but yet it's the most profound thing we can do uh, to shape how we live our lives. And especially since my wife died, I've tried to do that. And even before, um, six, seven years ago now, I was in a kayak with Doug Tompkins on a paddling trip in Patagonia, and we we got into a bad crosswind, and we had a faulty rudder on our boat, and we capsized in really cold water, and we had to fight for our lives to get out of there. And finally, our comrades we were with had turned around and come back and pulled us ashore. I was unconscious by the time I got ashore from hypothermia, and it took them longer to get Doug ashore, and he didn't make it. He died, and, and I lived. And then just a few years later, my wife died. So those two things together have underscored for me in a very profound way this otherwise banal <laughs> idea of living life in the moment, but just how utterly essential it is to a, a full life. So you just got to focus deeply. And that's it. You know, you learn how to focus and you learn how to pay attention. I love, you know, that there's a poet, Jane Hirschfield, who has a Japanese tonka poem called Seven Words. And it's seven words. And the first two are everything's connected. Everything changes. Pay attention. That describes wild nature in seven words. That captures the deep awareness that you need to have if you're going to pull the most you can out of your time in nature and wildness. I love that. Everything is connected. Everything changes. Pay attention. The question that is often asked of mountaineers like Rick and Yvonne and Doug who risk their lives over and over again is, why do you do it? Why do you climb? Why do you risk it all? And the answers always feel inadequate. But maybe this is why. Because only in risking it all can we truly see the reality that the day that we die will not be some vague day in the future as we conceive of it now. It'll be today. It'll be this moment. And only, perhaps, through seeing that truth, really seeing it through your own eyes, can you learn to pay attention to. The night before Rick and Jonathan set out on the climb that would come to end Jonathan's life, they camped out beneath the ruins of the Concagompa Monastery. And as they explored the ruined building those many years ago, they saw that all the statues and frescoes, all the Buddhas once painted and carved with exquisite care and skill had been destroyed. All of them, except one. And Jonathan led them over to it, puzzled that this should be the one alone to survive. It was the Buddha known as Maitreya, the Buddha of things to come. Jonathan smiled. This is a message, he said to them, a message to remember that the first fact of existence is impermanence. The book of this story is called Below Another Sky. And he called it that, I think, because of that message, because when we are paying attention, 
We are always below another sky. It is always new, and it will pass and change and never be the same again. And looking at that sky, looking deep into nature itself, is our greatest teacher of that fact, because it shows us that we too are part of that cycle. And those lessons, that wisdom, those skies, are what keep us coming back for more. I picked up that phrase from a, a childhood ditty by Robert Louis Stevenson, written in the 19th century. I should like to rise and go where the golden apples grow. And where below another sky, and watched by cockatoos and goats, lonely Crusoes build their boats. <laughs> so I, I, I always enjoyed that phrase. I was reading that poem on the train, crossing China on our way to Minyakonka, sitting in a car with Jonathan, and I, and I read it to him, and we both latched onto that phrase because it captured this idea of the world always refreshing itself anew. Of the idea of change in that Jane Hirschfeld poem, and the flip side of that change is impermanence. So, it, getting into your bones, the understanding that nature is always shifting and changing and reshaping, and you are too, is an awareness that everything is impermanent. Death is really the prerequisite to life. <laughs> And that's maybe one of the most important and profound things you can take from being in nature and, and wildness. That I don't think you get in the same way when you're in a, a human-built environment, because you're part of the web of life when you're in nature. You're integrated into it. You're on the ground at eye level with wildness, and you, over time, begin to become increasingly aware. This is where you came from, and you're back in your birthplace. <laughs> the birthplace where you started as a wild animal yourself, and you get to connect to that wild part of your heritage that, in our civilizations, gets buried so deep that when it surfaces, most of us don't even recognize it. But then you start to observe in wildness. This cycle of life and death—you see it all around you, and then you know you learn in a visceral way that the clock starts ticking for all of us. You know the moment we're born, and when you live with that awareness, then you live with a resilience that can reduce a lot of anxiety in your life, and that is the probably the most foundational thing that Jonathan taught me from his experience as a Buddhist. There is no synonym for God more perfect than beauty. Rick writes that at the end of the book, quoting Doug Tompkins, in fact, and it sums up perhaps the most foundational thing that Rick has taught us through his life lived wild. Because the beauty that we see is outside of us; it's all around us in the colors and patterns and harmony of the natural world. But it's inside us too, because it is something that only we can experience. So perhaps recognizing that beauty of the natural world is as close as we can come to God or the infinite, the divine, whatever you want to call it, because it is neither inside us nor outside of us. It exists only in that moment when we look at the world and see its beauty, and in awe and humility feel a part of that beauty too. That is a life lived wild. You don't have to live life. 
while to live life fully. <laughs> but to live life fully, it's a chore to do that without living part of it in, in nature. Even though you may not realize it uh, if you've never been in nature, uh, but if you go through your life without allowing nature to be part of your life, uh, you're going to miss out on a big part of it, of the fulfillment you otherwise, I think, might be able to, to enjoy. And to find that fulfillment, like I have, uh, you don't have to go out and climb some highest mountain. You just have to go outside. You know, I sometimes think of the common phrase of, you know, having ideas that are outside the box and thinking outside the box. And the wonderful thing about nature is that there is no box. You're just there without a box. And with no box, your mind just ranges widely and freely and you can bring into your mind uh, ideas and thoughts that uh, you would very likely never have in a man-made environment. It's very easy because all you gotta do is make that step outside. Thank you, Rick. Thank you for taking us on this adventure and for sharing the wisdom that you learned along the way. His latest book is called Life Lived Wild, Adventures at the Edge of the Map. It's a poignant, funny, inspiring, beautiful memoir of his life, a life lived to the full and in the wild. You're going to love it. It's linked in the show notes, website, or just search it up on Amazon, Patagonia.com, or wherever you get your books. Remember also, guys, if you're enjoying this show, please consider supporting it by becoming a patron. You'll get ad-free episodes, access to our exclusive Explorers community, monthly travel discounts, and lots more. The show is free, but it takes a lot of TLC to make it happen. So if you enjoy it, buy me a pint. That's all it costs, and you'll be helping to spread this message, our message of love for the outdoors, caring for this planet, and living your life just like Rick to the full. The link is in the show notes on the website or go to patreon.com forward slash armchair explorer podcast. Thank you for whatever you can do. Today's sound editor is Caleb Linville. Thank you to him. His podcast is called Novel. I'll link to it on the episode page of the website or just search it up. Beautifully crafted fictional stories to challenge the mind and move the heart, all set to his own musical compositions. I love it. I think you're going to like it too. So please do go and check that out. And finally, Last but not least, thank you to you guys. Remember, pay attention, because the more we look for wonder in the world, the more the wonder of the world becomes a part of who we are. Dare to be truly alive. <laughs>